If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Daniel chapter 4? Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 through verse 37. Uh, You'll find that in your bulletin, uh, but it is a launching pad into our message today. But uh, we will be kind of surveying all of chapter 4, so I would encourage you to Keep your Bibles or your Bible apps open uh, as we spend a short time in chapter 4 together. Uh, As uh, Timothy said, my name is Evan. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and I'm really glad to be able to gather uh, with all of you this morning. If this is your first time with us, we've been walking through a series in the book of Daniel titled Faith in a Strange Land, uh, where we consider, uh, with the help of the prophet Daniel, how to remain faithful Uh, to the Lord in a society that constantly pressures us uh, to do the opposite. And so with that in mind, we'll uh, be diving into uh, chapter 4 of Daniel. And uh, chapter 4 of Daniel is a very fascinating and somewhat unique chapter in all of the Bible. Uh, If you had to put a tag on uh, Daniel chapter 4, it would be a five-letter word with with I in the middle, and it would be pride. Pride. There's no better character uh, to show the corrosive effect of pride than King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, which is why this this chapter is fascinating and and unique, because in this chapter, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the pagan king of Babylon, the oppressor of God's people, he's about to share his testimony of the glory and goodness of the Most High God. And that might seem a bit baffling, considering that up until this point, he has been the primary antagonist to the Lord and to the Lord's people. And what I love about this chapter uh, is that it showcases yet again that there is nothing too hard for our God to do, uh, including reaching the heart of a hard-hearted, wicked king. So if you're able, I want to invite you to stand uh, as we read this testimony of this pagan king from Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 through verse 37. Hear now the word of the Lord. At the end of the days... I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason was returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more, greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, 
and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The very words of our God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, what a privilege it is to know you. Lord, I confess that as we consider the notion of pride from your word, I feel this sense of great inadequacy as I struggle with my own pride. Lord, I'm so grateful that you use broken people to bring glory to yourself. So Lord, to that end, would you transform lives in this moment? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Early in his career, he was nicknamed the Louisville Lip. You would better know him as Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali is one of the greatest boxers of all time. It was hard to match his skill. But he wasn't just impressive because of his fists and his footwork. No, he was also a big talker. That's why he was nicknamed the Louisville Lip. But it wasn't just that he was a talker. He really enjoyed, uh, he really enjoyed poetry. Uh, he would say things like, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, rumble, young man, rumble. But he wasn't just a poet, he also liked to brag. Self-described greatest of all time. He'd walk into a room and shout out, I'm so pretty. There's a story of a time that he was taking a flight across country to prepare for a fight. And as they were preparing to take off, this was the height of his career. And as you can imagine, people on the plane saw the Muhammad Ali and they wanted to meet him. They wanted to talk to him. And so in the midst of the fanfare, he's beginning to talk to these people. And the flight attendant walks by Muhammad Ali and says, Mr. Ali, would you please put your seatbelt on as they are preparing to take off? Ali disregarded what she said, was continuing on with the fanfare and talking until she came back again and said, Mr. Ali, would you please put on your seatbelt? And Muhammad Ali, with his classic quick wit, turned to the flight attendant and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which the flight attendant wittingly said back, Superman don't need no airplane. Now would you please put on your seatbelt? You see, with all the talent, with all the accolades, with all the accomplishments of Muhammad Ali, one thing was fairly evident. Muhammad Ali had an issue with pride. Who would have thought that at the end of his life he would struggle to put two words together as he battled Parkinson's disease? If there's one thing that the Lord detests, there's one thing that he cringes at, it's pride. First Peter 5, James 4, it says that the Lord opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. C.S. Lewis gives helpful perspective here on pride. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free. 
which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. Pride is the mother hen under which all other sins have hatched. Pride is cosmic treason against the Lord. Regardless of the sin you may see in your life, if you pull back the layers, what you will see driving it forward is pride. I like Tim Keller's definition of pride. He says, pride is a form of cosmic plagiarism, claiming to be the author of something that is actually a gift. Pride says... I did that without citing your source. So you look at your accomplishments and you feel this deep sense of, look what I have done. You look at your GPA or you look at your car or your house. You look at your bank account. You look at yourself in the mirror with your fine self. You you see the social media likes and follows. You look at your job or your kids and this deep sense of, look what I have done And you haven't put a footnote on it that says, please refer to the glory and goodness of the Lord. That is spiritual cosmic plagiarism. It's pride. And that is undoubtedly what we see in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. This king is convinced that he is the greatest of all time. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Daniel helped us to see that he had no problems titling himself King of the Universe. Last week, Pastor Timothy helped us to see this man's entrenched, me-centered worldview. And now we get to chapter 4, and there's a shift. There is still pride on display here, but King Nebuchadnezzar, rather than propping it up as something positive, he's showing it as cosmic plagiarism. Chapter 4, this king is writing a letter to all of the world. And he starts out here in verse 1 through 3. Look at it with me. He says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures from generation to generation. What a different tune we see in this king. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the leader of this world empire. He has conquered the known world. His kingdom is known to everyone as the superpower, unparalleled, unmatched at this moment in history. And he sends a decree... He says, I want to tell you about a greater king and a greater kingdom. He has an encounter with the most high God. In verse 4 through verse 33, we get to see him share about how he had this encounter. And we see this kind of once upon a time autobiography. He explains how he understands this everlasting kingdom. Similar to chapter 2, he receives a dream. Verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. 
There's that cosmic plagiarism. At the height of this power and this prominence, King Nebuchadnezzar is saying, look what I have done as he surveys the land. But this doesn't last as he's disturbed by a dream. Verse 5 through verse 18, we see him trying to get an understanding of this dream. He, He calls upon magicians and enchanters and astrologers and so forth, and no one can make sense of it until he calls upon Daniel. He comes on the scene and he trusts Daniel. In verse 10, he explains this dream. Look at it with me. He says, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. The king begins sharing about this dream, and in it he sees a tree of cosmic proportions. It's strong, it's it's beautiful, it's expansive, it's nourished beasts and birds, all flesh benefit from this grand tree. In verse 13 through verse 18, we see what happens to this tree. For the sake of time, I won't read it, but two major things happen to this tree. One, we see what's called a watcher, a holy one, come down and order the tree to be chopped down. Lop off the branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. The second thing we see is the holy one orders this stump that's left to remain and calls it a he that will be driven to madness like a beast for seven years. In verse 17, it tells us that the purpose of all of this is so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. King Nebuchadnezzar has no idea the purpose of this dream. He's desperate to understand the meaning and Daniel, who he calls Belteshazzar after one of his Babylonian gods, helps him to understand. Verse 19 through 27, Daniel interprets. Daniel tells him, it's you. You are strong, you are prosperous, and you will be cut down. Not just that, verse 25 says, you will be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. So not just chopped down, but he's actually going to be driven into madness like a beast. And with that, Daniel appeals to the king with an exhortation in verse 27. Look at it with me. He says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Essentially, Daniel tells the king, Love God and love people, and maybe this won't happen to you. And so we get to verse 28 through verse 33, and we see the dream is going to be fulfilled. It's, it's kind of funny when you look at verse 29 and verse 30, because it's the same pride that Nebuchadnezzar was dealing with. It's been 12 months, and we see no indication that he's taking the dream seriously. In fact, he's bragging about the splendor and the glory of his majesty, and before he can finish the thought... The dream is fulfilled. He's driven from his kingdom. He's eating grass like an ox. His hair and nails are wild. And 
and he's gone from his kingdom for seven years. And as we get to verse 34 and verse 37, he's restored. He's back on the throne, but this time he sings a different tune. He, he blesses the Most High as the one who is everlasting and the one who has dominion over all. Now, what is the point of all this? What does this have to do with any of us today? What should this teach us? This should teach us three things. One, humans are meant to reflect the glory of God, not retain the glory of God. Scholars note here that this king and his madness, that what the Lord is doing here is that he is aligning King Nebuchadnezzar psychologically where he is theologically. It's theological madness to think that you are God. It's theological madness to think that you are everlasting and can determine your days. Now, I know on some level, we can all acknowledge that. Regardless of your religious background, you could even be an atheist. But I think one thing that we can all agree on is that today we are one day closer to death. We are not everlasting. And the things that we value are not everlasting. We will die and be forgotten. And it is madness to think otherwise. I love talking to people that are in their 70s and older. I do, because when you, when you talk to people in their 70s and older, they are not under the illusion that they are God. They, they are painfully aware of their frail human experience. My dad is 75 years old, and, and just listening to him talk about the struggle of finding his keys every day. You know he is not convinced that he is God. And as he talks about his, his failing mind and his failing body, he often says to me, just keep living, son. Just keep living. Because that's where I'm headed, Lord willing. But that's the point. I can't actually guarantee that I'll make it to my 70s, and neither can you. But we live in a world that keeps telling us to cling to that which we know won't last. Our intellect, our physique, our wealth, our talent, it's all coming to an end. And what's on display here is madness to think that it won't. In an instant, it can be taken away. Isaiah lets us know that all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flowers of the fields. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but it's the word of the Lord that actually stands forever. But do we live as though we understand that? Because when we try to retain this glory, instead of reflecting it as something given to us by God, we're in danger of the insanity of pride. Secondly, the Lord's judgment is meant to bring recognition, not just destruction. Nebuchadnezzar, he, he's, he's standing outside of the story, trying to tell it, trying to help the audience to see who is actually in control of all of this in the midst of the judgment. That, that God actually is in control. He's actually sovereign over all of it, including Babylon leading the people of Judah into captivity. He is the one that's going to get what he wants. As the song says, this is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his wonders. Why? This world belongs to the Lord. And when we forget 
God uses whatever he deems necessary to help us to recognize who is God. That's why in this chapter, more than any other chapter in the Bible, we see the term for God six times, the most high. The most high. When we fail to understand, we will assume that we are the most high or something on this earth is the most high. And he wants us to understand who is really the most high. Thirdly and finally, this story should show us that God gives grace to the uttermost broken. In the midst of blatant disrespect, blatant blasphemy, this pagan king that has done wicked things has received grace upon grace from the Lord. Throughout this chapter, we see the Lord sends this warning in a dream. The Lord chose to preserve this stump when it's chopped down. He sets seven years to the madness and restores him to the throne. Grace upon grace upon this king of wickedness. Why in the world would you let this man experience grace? Of all people. Because the Lord wants to show that no one is beyond the need for God's grace and no one is exempt from accessing God's grace. There are no hopeless cases. We get to see this life-changing event in Nebuchadnezzar so that we don't fall to the temptation that we deserve grace more than Nebuchadnezzar or so that we don't fall to the temptation that we could never experience what King Nebuchadnezzar experienced because we're just too wicked. Grace is inherently scandalous. And it seeks out the uttermost broken for the purpose of displaying the glory of God in the world. King Nebuchadnezzar gives this testimony in verse 36. And he's talking again about being restored and his glory restored. And scholars debate here if he was really transformed because he seems a little braggy again. But I would agree that he is transformed because, yes, he's acknowledging splendor. Yes, he's acknowledging glory. But he's finally citing his source. He's talking about it's the everlasting king that has done this. He's not propping himself up anymore. He's propping up the Lord. He finally cites his source and acknowledges who's in control. So let me ask you an unfair question. Where do you see in your life displays of pride? That's an unfair question because if C.S. Lewis is correct, if pride does have this blinding effect, we actually don't know how prideful we are. And sure, we can talk about indicator lies. We can talk about the indicator. If, you, if you know, insecurity can be an indicator or being defensive is an indicator. If you're, if you're quick to call out somebody else and slow to call out your own stuff, that's definitely an indicator. But really, we don't understand how deep our pride goes. That's the catch of humility. Once you're convinced you have it down, that's when you know you don't have it at all. We assume that we are right in our estimation of ourselves and others. And so we need the Lord's help in really seeing that. King Nebuchadnezzar, he makes it clear, we have to embrace that we are accounted as nothing in comparison to the Lord and his glory. The Lord takes all the glory. Isaiah 48 says he will not share any of his glory with anyone else. 
And we live in a strange land that is constantly calling for us to do whatever we can by any means necessary to prop ourselves up when the call of the gospel is lay yourself down. This isn't a self-deprecating way, but it's to say that all this splendor, all this glory, it is derived from a king that is greater than I. It is derived from a kingdom that is greater than mine. That is the way of this everlasting kingdom. For in it, we see a king that humbled himself. Philippians 2 said that he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross. The cross is actually the greatest display of humility. For it is a king that endured a humiliating act that he did not need for a people that did not deserve it. So that he can bring them to himself. So like Nebuchadnezzar in verse 37, we, we praise and we extol and we honor this king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. So the invitation from this king is... Will you lay down your crown at his feet? Will we humble ourselves to this greater king and this greater kingdom? May it be so today that we would cite our source, this great king of ours. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess that we are more prideful than we could ever imagine. And, let, and yet your love spans the scope of all of it. Lord, in our madness, you still delight in us. And you still persist in calling us to yourself. Lord, would you help us to hear the call that we would submit to this everlasting king and his dominion. In Jesus' name, amen.